Good evening. It is another wonderful opportunity that we have been blessed with to be able to assemble as the Pippin Church of Christ as we gather together for the last time in 2018. Misunderstandings of the Bible and the Church. That's going to be a the title of our lesson tonight, taken from Acts chapter 17, verse 11. And as we come to a slide of introduction, it is a wonderful blessing of the Word of God. That Bible that you hold in your lap tonight, it's a book like none other. Because of one reason, because it is in the inspired, perfect Word of God. God, it was His will to be able to allow His Word to be given to the human family, for one to put their trust and their knowing that one can base his or her salvation on it. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, we are told, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But sadly, in our world, especially in the realms of the denomination of religions that we see, comes man's thoughts and viewpoints, false teachings. Many set an agenda to purpose, purposefully try to dis discredit, disapprove, and twist passages to fit their beliefs. And we see these examples through acts of worship, Bible authority, the Christian life, the plan of salvation, and the list can go on. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus warns us on, about this. He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. Here we see individuals. They appear to be righteous. They appear to be sincere in the truth that they preach, but inwardly they are raving wolves. They are purposefully leading souls to destruction. And in 1 John 4, 1, we read, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are, they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the, wor to the world. This verse is just as needful in that day as it is for us today. With a little research, the last account that we've noted here is there in our world today, there is close to 40,000 religious denominations in our world. We see many setting these agendas, namely the one that we're going to look at tonight. The examples we're going to look at tonight and the direction that we'll look in the lesson is some quotations from a former Church of Christ member. Now notice I said former. This individual, she is not a member of the church any longer. And some of you may be familiar with the videos that are, that are in the public domain on the internet, on the website YouTube. The videos are Why I Left the Church of Christ, part one and two. And throughout those videos, 
she makes many statements of why she left the Church of Christ. And so we're going to take those statements, those quotations, and d d build the lesson around those tonight and point out the biblical truths and really and base our truth in that on how the Bible explains those things. You may remember in May of 2016, a public debate took place between Michael Bronner and Jack Honeycutt. And after that debate, Brother Randy here took a series of lessons on some of those statements that Mr. Bronner made and brought out uh, the truth of the Bible on those matters, and that's going to be the same basis that we'll base the lesson on tonight. We'll look at these quotations tonight and read them. And in the first video, she makes this statement. I was raised in the Church of Christ. It's a denomination that considers itself non-denominational. There are a lot of strands, different strands of it. You'll find some that are very strict and conservative and others that are more liberal. So our first point tonight, our first topic will be the Church of Christ being a denomination. Is the Church of Christ another denomination of those 40,000 religious organizations we see? We'll go ahead and answer that question is no, it is not. She does make a statement in that quote, though, that some are conservative and others are liberal. Now, we all know in the Church of Christ that some, that's a, true, that's a true statement. We could agree with that. There are some congregations that are nothing more than a denomination. They wear the name Church of Christ, but they have allowed the teachings of man to surround their teachings on the plan of salvation, around worship, and other things. She goes on to say in that quote, though, that she was raised in a more conservative one. She even goes on to say that her father was a former preacher. She goes on to say that it was, a never, it was never a deeply felt emotional experience. But going back to that statement of a liberal congregation versus a conservative one, we have an example of this in Colossians chapter 2 described for us in chapter 2 verses 18 through 23. That congregation was given into a form of worship that was displeasing in the eyes of God. It was called will worship, the text reads. And it, we can go on to say, we here at Pippin or any other congregation that wishes to keep Christ as, the head, as head as commanded that we do will be conservative in keeping his word in every way. We're given those very commandments in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 5:23. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22.
And having put all things under his feet, and gave them to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fulfilleth all in all. And also in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23, in the description of Paul's explanation here in wives loving, or husbands loving their wives, we are given, we are told this, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So one can say if they're not in that body, they can't be saved. We'll develop that. We'll look at that again a little later in the lesson tonight. We may also appreciate that any denomination that considers itself worldly, and there's of those 40,000 different strands, we know there's Baptist and Methodist, and the list can go on. But the one problem we have with that is they, they are a form of a man-made doctrine. A, a human being started those. Jesus dispelled that truth in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he gave his, ex, his exhortation of the kingdom as being a spiritual one. The kingdom, he said, the, this kingdom is not, a, of, is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And we've also told that in John 18, 18, verses 36. We can also appreciate that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ, whether that be grace, whether that be the forgiveness of sin, Ephesians 1, 3. Again, we'll develop that thought a little bit later in the lesson tonight as well. She also goes on to make a statement here that she was baptized at the age of eight. But she never really deeply, it was never a deeply felt emotional experience for her. Now, she didn't go in the video to say this, but if one is not baptized knowing the significance of what baptism does and the body that they have become, the church, that you and I know it, then that baptism could be faulty. Now, that may be a different topic for a different lesson tonight, but we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 that we are baptized into one body, not two, not three, but one. We're baptized into a part of that one spiritual body that our Savior died for. So that dispels that truth. The Church of Christ is not a denomination. And wouldn't it be awful for any congregation who does not hold Christ as head, what they will be faced with on the day of judgment. And I found it interesting that in both videos, Miss Amber does not, either time in either video, make any reference regarding to any of these scriptures. Friend, because there's no good argument that anyone can make to change what's, what God has said about this. There is one body, one church. So we come to the end of that slide and move to the next one. Here's another, another quotation that she, that she said. And this is a little bit of a lengthier quotation, and we'll look at it piece by piece. <clears throat> In the church of Christ, the doctrine is elevated above everything else, whether it's intentional or, intentional or not. It is, 
it is elevated that the rules are what's important. You have to keep the rules because one sin will condemn you to hell. One sin because all sin is the same. This creates an atmosphere of fear because no one can be perfect, but we're all trying to be perfect. We think that's how we'll get to heaven, and that's the only way we can please God. We then see here several statements that she made in that, that quotation, but the first, we'll look at this first, at the idea of all sin being the same. Is all sin the same in the sight of God? That's a good question, isn't it? We'll go ahead and answer that question as no. The biblical view of all sin being the same is not correct. Let's look at some verses, though, to prove that truth. It seems the first one we should look at comes from uh, our Savior himself. In John 19, verse 11, when he was being placed on trial before his crucifixion, he says, again, John 19, verse 11, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto, unto thee hath the greater sin. We, we, see, we then see here a distinction as one sin being greater than another one. And friend, we could stop that argument right there and close the matter, but the Bible still is, has more to say about this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, in this context here, Paul is describing cautions that he dealt with as well as what Christians would suffer. In verse 12, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, if all sin were equal in the sight of God, how could these here in, in the description of these verses grow worse? We, sit, we then see the point here, don't we? Even in the description in the Old Testament, in Psalms 19, verse 13, the psalmist here describes how God view, views a sin known as a presumptuous sin, being that sin of knowing it's wrong, but having an attitude of, I'm going to do it anyway. We also see in Exodus chapter 32, verse 30, when Moses was coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and Israel was worshiping a golden calf. He says there, they had committed a great sin. So we then see the distinction here. No, it is true that no sin will enter heaven. Now that Miss Amber did make that statement, and that is a true statement. No sin will enter heaven. We're, we're told that in Revelation 21, verse 27. But the thing is that those sins have to be forgiven. Those sins have to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And if again, we learned a moment ago, if one's not in Christ, they don't have that forgiveness of sin. But for the notion of all sin being, all sin being the same, that definitely is not the case. And I thought it would be appropriate here to look at forgiveness. She also goes on to say no one can be perfect. No one can live a perfect life. And again, that's a true statement. 
we're told in 1 John 1, 8, as well as Romans 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 23, that if we say we, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. You see, God expects us to be faithful. God expects us, uh, God knows that we are going to be tempted. God knows that we're going to sin. He knows that Jesus himself knows what temptation is like, doesn't he? But like we, we, learned, we saw a moment ago, we, that sin has to be forgiven. And that promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. We may note and interject a point here that a life of habitual, ongoing sin cannot enjoy this blessing, that one has to repent, that one has to realize the error of their life. That description is given to us in the in the first John in chapter three, verse eight. And can't we appreciate texts like Romans chapter eight, verse one, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And blessed is the man to the to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Going to our next comment on grace. Miss Amber has some things to say about grace here. She says, Grace covers our sins by Jesus' blood. And as I started looking and learning about grace, I started to experience real love, unconditional love. So let's take that quotation and talk about grace for the next few moments. What is grace and does it cleanse our sins? We could all agree that grace is one of those topics in religion today that the world really Takes, at, takes aim at and teaches falsely. These things are taught farther than any biblical truth in the New Testament. So what does grace do? In John chapter 117, we are told that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 7, the text says, "...in whom we have redemption." Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So we then see that Jesus' blood cleanses our sins. And that grace that God allowed, allowed him, allowing him to go to the cross to shed that blood, is his grace towards us. And we may have heard this famous statement of grace that it is given... It's extended by God, but not deserved. And that would be a, a fair statement for grace, it seems to me. It's, though it's extended, but it's not deserved. There's not a one of us in this audience tonight that deserves the blood of Christ. But God's extended it to us through that sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we also see here 
in this set of, set of verses, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with the glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We then can appreciate that remarkable, remarkable amount of grace surrounding his death. We then see that grace offered through the blood of Christ does cleanse our sins, but under one condition. One has to be in the proper place to receive it. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we're told where that grace is found. It's found in Christ. So if one is baptized into Christ, baptized into the church, they have grace. They can appreciate that. And also in texts such as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we then learn here that grace is a gift from God in all these aspects. So if one takes the world's teaching on grace of it being a feeling and Miss Amber here makes the statement she started experiencing love unconditional love that would have to be some sort of feeling in her heart that is not anywhere near the teaching of of the Bible on the, on, on the issue of on the matter of grace this issue of grace being a feeling is just not so. It's not just a good feeling. Grace is so much more than that. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, we are told here, By whom also we have access by faith unto his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God offers it, and we receive it by faith. And that is an overwhelming part of our salvation, isn't it? Again, we are saved by grace through faith. And that's how God designed it. That's how God designed that part of the plan of salvation. Our next point is that grace also teaches. Let's turn, if you would, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 8. We've got a remarkable teaching here of grace. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Now we all remember this scene. Sin had overwhelmingly come on the earth. And God had made the decision to destroy it by flood. But one individual, beginning here in verse 8, found something in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we then see that Noah saw the grace from God. And when we, go through, when we go down to verse 14, we then see God's instructions. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with, with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window 
shalt thou make of the ark, and in, in a cubic shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shall be set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. You see, by God's grace, he gave a system of instructions here for Noah to do this task, to build an ark. And in verse 22, we see Noah's reaction to that grace, that system of instructions. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Grace also teaches us here in the New Testament. If you would, let's turn to Titus. Titus chapter... Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Again, that's Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessings, the blessed hope of the glorious appearing in the great, of, in the, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see here that grace teaches us, even as a Christian, to do some things. We have to deny ungodliness. We have to deny worldly lust. We have to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world and in every way of our life. So God has given us our gra this grace as a means of instruction. It also says that God's grace has appeared unto all men. But sadly, all men will not be saved. All men will not accept that grace. Not all men will obey the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we are told, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the, of the truth. But one must obey and become a member of the church to receive it. One must repent, or one who has never obeyed the gospel, or even an erring child of God, must repent. We now see with the rejection of God's grace that many in our world engage in, we then see how it can be flustered. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I will not frustrate the grace of God. And in Jude verse 4, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Teaching it, teaching some, teaching what grace was not. That sounds familiar in our world today, doesn't it? So the grace of God is not just a good feeling. The grace of God does all these things that we've seen here in this slide. It's a gift. It cleanses our sins through the blood of Christ. It teaches, and we can fluster the grace of God if we're not careful. So going on to the next slide, we then see here Bible authority and examples. I have another quotation here that's touching this, and it's a lengthy quotation, so we'll, again, we'll go through it piece by piece. Again, she says, 
The Church of Christ has one basic way of viewing Scripture that defines everything else. And the overwhelming principle is where's your authority? You have to have authority for what you do. And the way we claim authority in the New Testament, the New Testament only, is by commands, examples, and necessary inferences. The problem I began to see with that was we pick and choose which examples we bind and require for salvation. For instance, we have an example of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, meeting in an upper room and preaching till midnight. And presumably, he took the Lord's Supper. It says that he broke bread. We assume it was the Lord's Supper. And it was on the first day of the week. And because of that, this means that the Church of Christ partakes the Lord's Supper every Sunday. The Church of Christ, I believe, goes too far that they say you have to do it that way or you're going to hell. You're sinning. But there are examples such as foot washing, lifting up holy hands, the holy kiss, and other things like that that we don't bind because they seem odd for our culture. So where do we get the authority from God? To bind examples. There are verses where Paul says, imitate me, but he's not talking about traveling by ship or going on missionary journeys to Asia Minor or Europe. He's speaking of his way of life, his conduct and character. And so those verses are skewed to mean that we can bind examples, and really, that's taking them out of context. End of quote. We then see in this quotation from Miss Amber that many, many mistakes that she has made in the authority of the Bible. So let's look at these Bible examples under the authority of Bible author authorization. It's very important that anyone studying the Word of God must understand the context of a passage and ask ourselves, is it culture or not? Because the Bible in its context will tell us that. Like Miss Amber has done here, and she even said, she took the Lord's Supper and compared it to foot washing, lifting up holy hands, and the holy kiss. Now foot washing, that's true, that is cultural, but it was never a form of worship. In the New Testament, the holy kiss is never a form of worship. Lifting up holy hands, we learned, we learned that, oddly enough, last Sunday night about what that is in our question and, question and answer series from Brother Randy. That that was a, the demeanor of that person's life when he leads in a public prayer. Miss Amber's absolutely mistaken on this. She's, it seems here she's built a straw man and bloated over with what the passage is indicating that's cultural and then binding that to the Lord's Supper. So we can ask ourselves, is the Lord's Supper, partaking it on the, on the first day of the week, is that cultural? Was it cultural in, the, in its passage in Acts 20, verse 7? Let's turn there and read that. In Acts, 20, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, we then see that this was a practice that was done on the first day of the week. And the text goes on to say that Paul preached to them until midnight. 
This wasn't cultural. It just wasn't for one congregation. Or Paul taught the same thing to them, to Corinth, and to other, the other, com, uh, other congregations. It was an example that was to be followed to please God as an act of worship, just as you and I do in the, in the year 2018. So it is, if not, and we can also turn and look at this example, if not for approved examples and ask ourselves this, how would we know what baptism does for us for salvation? In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized. The example was here was, first, they were pricked in their heart once they heard that sermon. They wanted to know what they needed to do to be saved. They first had to repent, and then they could be baptized for the remission of sins. We learn three things here. Four things, really. One, they have to be pricked in their heart. They have to be motivated to want to obey the gospel and call on his name. And they have to repent, that change of mind that leads to a change in action, and then be baptized. And we're told here what baptism does. It's for the remission of sins. In another example, in Acts chapter 8, verses 35 through 40, we're given that example of the Ethiopian eunuch. He had to believe before he was baptized. And we also know the two going down into the water together. We then learn here that baptism is, means total immersion. Buried in Christ. We can look at another one. If, it, if, it, if not for an approved example, how would we know that addressing, uh, that adding things to the Lord's Supper would be wrong? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 through 34, it's not to be eaten as a common meal, and we are to discern the Lord's body. If we don't, we eat and drink damnation to our souls. Paul here uses this example as a way of not to do something. And also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse, verses 15 through 20, some sinful behaviors of the church at Corinth are described here as an example for us and how we should adorn ourselves in modest clothing. Paul goes on there to say of how the body is the temple of God and dressing our bodies appropriately. And those verses are just as needful for us today as they were then. They are not cultural. They're Context is not cultural that they are found. And Miss Amber also goes to making that, that, that quote, looking at the life of Paul, she states that how Paul lived his physical life. Let's look at that for a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Wherefore I beseech ye that be ye followers of me, 
And he goes on to say, even as I also am of Christ in chapter 11, verse 1. This wasn't his life as in his day-to-day basis of going to places or in his occupation. This was talking about imitating him as his life in Christ. How those of that congregation should live, in, live their lives in the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 18, verse 3, we're told his occupation. He was a tent maker. But again, that is not what he was describing to that congregation. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told, Brethren, be, he, he says here again, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for in for example, this right here, this verse here, dispels the fact of uh, for us following biblical examples for authority. They are necessary for salvation. They are approved, and that's how the God of Heaven, through these inspired writers, delivered it to uh, for us today. They are to be followed. And in one chapter later. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, Those things which ye have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Why should God be with them? Why should God be with them if they, if they don't follow his will? He's, 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 he's promised us that. God, God's told us that, that he will not be with those who go beyond his will. We see that here on the next slide. So our next quotation comes with the, with the thought of a necessary inference. Now how we gain, how we look at biblical authority is, she, she correctly quoted that. We do, we do use examples, commands, and necessary inferences as they're called. But here's another quotation that she made, makes regarding that. The Church of Christ takes the New Testament and looks at it through the lens of authority, that we need authority for everything we do, and they use the verse that says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. That means by the, by the authority of so, we need to have authority for what we do, my first problem with that is we don't have authority for all we do. You don't have authority for songbooks or pews or a building. There is no authorization in the New Testament to pay for or to maintain a building out of the Lord's money. Who told us that we needed to scour the New Testament looking for commands, examples, and necessary inferences in order to organize our corporate worship? That's nowhere in Scripture. From just reading that, we can tell the fallacy in that argument, don't we? But as we turn here, looking at necessary inferences, she makes mention of a songbook and pews, and I've added a few more up here for our consideration. Nowhere, and it's true, nowhere in the New Testament 
does it say that we use songbook we are to use songbooks for our singing or to have pews to set in or to have a projector here or a PA system or even a babstery or to pay bills for, and the use of a building but if we look at these things through a necessary inference and ask ourselves a question does these things alter or change what we do in worship? Does it add to anything in carrying out the commandment or the example? And the answer is no, it doesn't. It's an aid to us. It aids us in helping us to our service to God. Just as this building here, we gather here, we worship in spirit and in truth. We could meet anywhere in worship. We could meet in houses just as they did in the first century. Many times they did or in a place where distractions are limited. We could meet out in the parking lot under a tent and have worship. We begin to see the point, don't we? Or what about our songbooks? You and I both know it would probably be difficult to sing with the spirit and the understanding if we didn't have something to look at, if we didn't have those words to look at or to use the projector to project them up here on the wall. It would be extraordinarily hard to carry out that commandment. We then see now where this is leading, that as long as anything does not add to, alter, or take away from the teaching of that commandment or example, then that would be an approved thing by God. And one more thing before we go to our, our next point. Miss Amber makes a statement, and I'll call it negative influences. Now, I know our lesson tonight hasn't been surrounding a Christian man marrying a Christian woman in the, in, in the church, but Miss Amber makes this statement. When my husband made the decision to leave, and I decided I wanted to do what he wanted to do. And I'm so glad that we left. Because when you're in it, it's not that bad. It's just a good way of doing things. Yes, it's true that every single Sunday people will say we are commanded to do these things. And it's not true we're, we're not commanded. We just take examples and make commands out of them. But when you come out of it, you see how harmful and divisive it is and how much good you're missing out on and doing, on doing, and how much light you're missing out on showing the world because you're dividing the body of Christ, the very thing we fight against in the church of Christ, the division of denominations is what you have become. Friend, there can be no other sadder statement coming from an individual talking about the church of our Lord like that. But I've, I've made the point, a negative influence. She makes here a strong point that her husband wanted to leave. Now she makes a point in the first video that her husband is a preacher. Now obviously it's not for the church of Christ. So I just want to interject this point that anybody, young people, looking for, for a mate... Uh, husband or wife 
May it be a person in the church, that one that won't influence you to go off and pursue things that are away from the teaching of the Bible. And taking from this, this quotation, we have already learned that the Holy Spirit uses these examples to tell us what God demands in the ways of life, what things are good or bad, and worship. And if we want to take those cultural ideas, and the New Testament does have certain things that are cultural. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a statement there that for the, this present distress, not to marry. It wasn't a good time to marry. Now, that's not a law or an example binding on us today. That was for that time because of the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. But anything else that's not cultural, whether it be a list of sins that are command, that are condemned of, uh, for, for hell, that's going to send a person to hell, or whether it's wor examples of worship, then we are to follow them for salvation if we expect to be pleasing to God in His sight. And if we, when we come to our last example for tonight, God's wrath. At the end of the first video, and maybe some of you are familiar with these videos, but if, if that she is made, but if you're not, I, if you choose to watch them, you'll see really how these things piece together here that we've talked about tonight. But she, she makes this statement at the end of the first video about God's wrath. She says, the sacrifice that he paid took all of God's wrath. He's not saving any for us. Now, friend, that's a strong statement. It's a false statement. But let's read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, about God's wrath. And let's, see, let's ask ourselves as we're reading it, is he saving it for us or is he not? And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We then see that God is going to take destruction, take vengeance on those that didn't obey him, that were found unfaithful. That description is also given in Matthew chapter 24 of the Lord's description of uh, entrance into heaven and hell when that day of judgment comes, the separation of the sheep from the goats. And in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 23, again, we've highlighted it early in the lesson tonight, but we'll look at it again. One must be in the body to be saved from God's wrath. It doesn't matter what denomination that one may claim to be in, if they're not in the church of our Lord that was established in the first century, they're not saved. And those who be, go beyond what is written has not God, 2 John chapter 1, verse 9. Anybody can try to make an argument and 
take a scripture out of its context to make their viewpoint known and try to persuade others. But a verse like that should be noteworthy for you and you and I. If we go beyond what's written, we do not have God. That verse goes on to say, He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So that's a two-sided coin here. If you're not going to abide in the doctrine, or if you're going to go beyond what's written, you don't have God. But he that abides in it, follows it completely, and appreciates it, has both a father and the son. As we come to the close of our lesson tonight, I know these statements there that she, she has made, they're strong in what she, she now believes the church of Christ to be. And I know that you feel the same as I do, that we will, we will pray for her and her family and anyone who that you and I may come into a conversation with that has maybe similar statements. We pray for those individuals. We pray that they will come back to the church if they were a part of it. And we pray for those that are false teachers that may be talking to them in a way to allow to get into a Bible study, to study with them, to show the wonderful truth that God has revealed to us. So our lesson text tonight came from Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Brother Mike read that for us, and it says, These things were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Are the things that you and I do tonight, are they so? Is our worship so? Is the aspects of your life and mine, are they so? If not, make them right tonight. Come back to God, if that be the need of your life, if you're an erring child of God. We will pray for you and with you, and he's promised to forgive just as he did for, for Simon in Acts chapter 8. But to one that's not a Christian, one that's never obeyed the gospel, God's plan of salvation is this. You must hear the word, Romans 10, 17. You must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark 16, 15. You must repent of those sins in your life, Luke chapter 13, verse 3. You must confess his wonderful name, Romans 10, 9. And you must be scripturally baptized, immersed in water for the remission of sins. He's promised to add you to the church and all those wonderful blessings, spiritual blessings, can be yours. And then we, finally, we must remain faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. If we can help you in these two ways tonight, won't you come? We pray that you will come while together we stand and sing.